Welcome to Cascades Bible Church. For the rest of you, I invite you to turn with me in your copy of God's Word to 1 Corinthians chapter 6. <clears throat> 1 Corinthians chapter 6 is our text, and we're looking at verses uh, continuing our study through this, um, through this chapter and looking at verses 12 to 20. So I just want to read it and familiarize ourselves with it. And then we will um, do a bit of review before looking at verses, specifically verses 15 to 20 is where we left off a few weeks ago. Paul says this, uh, writing to this church in Corinth, he says, All things are lawful for me, but not all things are profitable. All things are lawful for me, but I will not be mastered by anything. Food is for the stomach, and the stomach is for food, but God will do away with both of them. Yet the body is not for immorality, but for the Lord, and the Lord is for the body. Now God has not only raised the Lord, but will also raise us up through his power. Do you not know that your bodies are members of Christ? Shall I then take away the members of Christ and make them members of a prostitute? May it never be. Or do you not know that the one who joins himself to a prostitute is one body with her? For he says the two shall become one flesh. But the one who joins himself to the Lord is one spirit with him. Flee immorality. Every other sin that a man commits is outside the body, but the immoral man sins against his own body. Or do you not know that your body is the temple of the Holy Spirit who is in you, whom you have from God, and that you are not your own? For you have been bought with a price. Therefore, glorify God in your body." Now, if you remember back in chapter 5, when we were going through that a few weeks ago, Paul taught us that we, as the church, are in fact a new unleavened lump. He describes us in verse 7 as like a lump of dough. Clean out the old leaven, he says, so that you will be a new lump, just as you are in fact unleavened. For Christ, our Passover, also has been sacrificed. The old leaven of sin's corrupting influence in our lives has been removed, it has been cleaned out. We as believers have, as it were, laid our hands on the head of Christ by faith and confessed our sinfulness and our need for God's forgiveness. And Christ, he describes here in verse 7, who is our Passover, final and blameless Passover lamb, has been sacrificed in our place and he has atoned for and washed us from our sin. That's the picture there. God's people then are a purified people. And if we are a purified people, and we are, then the implication is that we should live in a purified fellowship, one where obedience to God's word is the expectation and open rebellion isn't tolerated nor excused, and especially in this realm of immorality, which is the context of chapters 5 and 6. And that wasn't happening in Corinth. That was the issue that he's writing to address in chapters 5 and 6, And he is instructing the church and us to judge the body rightly and to walk in purity and holiness. So that's kind of where we're at. Similar to Paul's day, we too, we said last time that we were in the text here together, we live in a culture where immorality is so pervasive that God's people really need the light of Scripture if we're ever going to be able to navigate the waters, these treacherous waters, Safely, And um, the world we live in, much like the world that Paul lived in in the days that he um, preached and taught and ministered, 
The, the, the world we live in has normalized and, and idolized sexual immorality in a way um, that uh, it's so, so extensive that it's now become synonymous with one's identity. And um, sexual immorality of every stripe and color isn't simply a behavior that someone chooses to engage in. It's become to them who they are as a person. Um, homosexuality, lesbianism, transgender, nonconformity, polyamory, prostitution, fornication, pornography, you name it, the prevailing winds of our culture have made an idol out of all of it. And uh, the expectation, of course, is that not only would the culture as a whole um, kind of force everyone to bow down and worship at that temple, but God's people as well. And, um, and it was no different, really, in Paul's day. The predominant, a predominant spiritual issue in Corinth is the same predominant spiritual issue that we are faced with in our world and in our context. And that is an idolatry of immorality, the idolatry of immorality. If you remember, and this, again, this is a bit of a review, from Rome, uh, Paul's instruction to the church at Rome in chapter 1, he points out that idolatry that replaces the truth of God, the truth of the triune God, with a lie always, always ends up awash in a cesspool of immorality. And I'm not going to read it to you again, but if you look at Romans 1 and verses 21 to 28, he, he shows that progression and how that unfolds. Idolatry always, always dead ends with immorality and a depraved mind. And idolatry is not a small thing for God. Uh, it is deadly serious. It provokes God because it gives what is rightly due to God to other people and other things who are not worthy of that worship. And so it provokes God, but it not only provokes God by denying, what he, denying him what he is due and rightfully owed, but idolatry is, um, it corrupts and destroys those who engage in it. In other words, it's not just that God's glory is being robbed, it's that our our very life is being destroyed, and because of that, if we look back at um, chapter 6 and verses 9 and 10, he, he shows that, that do not be deceived, neither fornicators nor adulterers, idolaters, that's, nor adulterers or effeminate, nor homosexuals, nor thieves, nor covetous, nor drunkards and revilers, and on and on the list goes, will inherit the kingdom of God. So it is not only, um, it is not only an issue temporally, because it obviously has consequences in the real world, but it's an issue eternally in that it brings about and leads to eternal destruction. And so it's our responsibility as Christians to, to pull back the curtain of man's heart and to make the case from the scriptures that the issues behind immorality aren't biological, they are not um, psychological, they are spiritual issues. They are spiritual and Superficial solutions to spiritual problems are the equivalent of putting band-aids over bullet holes. In other words, if you receive a, a gunshot to the torso, that's a fatal wound. That is something that requires a radical intervention before you either bleed out or die from some kind of infection. Beloved, the gospel of Jesus Christ is the only radical intervention that can make the sinner whole. And that is, a, that is something we have got to hold fast to from the scriptures. And praise God that the creator of heaven and earth is so righteous and so filled with mercy and so filled with grace 
that he does not leave us to ourselves in that. Um, just as in Israel's day, God's corrective discipline is meant to lead us as the sinner to salvation, to lead us into the truth that all who have ears to hear would know the Lord, would magnify him and glorify him above all things. And that is what Paul is doing in these chapters. He is, in, he is writing to correct and to discipline them because Paul's people, excuse me, God's people in Corinth were, um, had made an idol out of sexual immorality. And they were continuing to walk in it. They had gone astray. And so he, he writes here, carried along by the Holy Spirit, to show, and he does this in a masterful way, to show that immorality is a spiritual issue. And then, once he has made that clear, he extends a spiritual solution to help them to walk in purity. Now, we said uh, two Sundays ago, when we were back in the text, in verses 12 to 14, that Paul begins in this section by refuting two of the common arguments that the Corinthians had kind of grabbed onto to make um, basically an excuse of their sin and their choices. And, um, and we said they aren't comprehensive. This is not every argument that could be made, but it is certainly representative of the heart's gymnastics, if you will, to justify our sin. And what we saw was first, in verse 12, this false premise of freedom that they were clinging to. The opening statement of verse 12, all things are lawful for me, that is uh, almost universally affirmed through the centuries, really. This isn't just even a recent commentator thing. This is affirmed through the centuries as being a slogan that they were kind of championing, like, we're free in Christ. And, uh, and so they, they made their freedom in Christ, which is a true thing, they made it an unqualified freedom, as if we could do anything we wanted. And, um, and what, of course, what we learned was that it, our freedom in Christ is not a limitless freedom. It's not a freedom to do whatever we please, but our freedom is in, hemmed in by the Scriptures. It's hemmed in by God's revealed will, and it's shaped by what is permissible under the boundaries of God's truth. Our freedom is a qualified freedom as believers. We are free in Christ. So that is the parentheses, if you will, of our freedom. And beyond that, moreover, the real question you and I, you and I need to ask isn't whether an action is lawful or right or even all right, because um, that's, like, that's just like baseline. Of course, we can only do what God permits, what we really need to be asking is not only whether it is good and right, but whether it benefits others. And we'll get into that in much more detail in verses, uh, chapters 8 and 9. True Christian conduct is not determined by whether you have the right to do something, but whether that choice, whether that choice is helpful to those around you and whether it loves and serves those beyond you. And so he continues in verse 12. Restate, restating their, their slogan, all things are lawful for me, but I will not be mastered by anything. Some things in life aren't expressly forbidden in the scriptures, but their impact and their power to enslave are so significant on our hearts that they are, for all intents and purposes, out of bounds. And we can't, we can't allow them to gain a toehold on our lives. Immorality is not only expressly forbidden in scripture, so that's obvious. It's entirely enslaving as well to those who engage in it. So really, no matter how you slice it, the arguments they're making here 
are arguments that are unsound and they don't hold water. And Paul exposes that in verse 12. But they were, they were clinging to a second argument in verses uh, 13 um, and 14. And that is they were making a false divide between the physical and the spiritual. They were saying, listen, um, uh, God's design, you see this in verse 13, God, the food is for stomach and the stomach is for food. Again, that was another kind of a saying, something that they were uh, uh, clinging on to. And, and they're basically saying, listen, uh, God's designed the food for a stomach for food and food for the stomach, right? And that's a true statement, and Paul would affirm that. But the Corinthians were arguing that all then, all the bodily appetites are basically the same. And in the end, God's going to do away with our stomachs and the food that goes in them, so it doesn't really matter what we do with our body. Um, they had created this false dichotomy, this false divide between their physical self and their, their immaterial self, between um, the, 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 the body and the soul. And uh, so their saying is, listen, fornication is just like eating, it's just like drinking, it's just like sleeping, so what's the big deal? Paul rejects that out of hand. While food and the stomach have both been stamped as belonging to this present age, and that's a true thing, that's a true statement, yes, it's all going to burn up. Your body, on the other hand, which incorporates both the material you and the immaterial you, the physical and the spiritual, that has been stamped as belonging to the age to come. That's why he says at the end of verse 13, the body is not for immorality, but for the Lord, and the Lord is for the body. And that statement is the principle, the north star that the rest of this passage orients us to. We come back to this again and again because this is the main point. Your body is not destined for immorality. That is, any kind of sexual behavior that deviates from God's design for a, a committed husband and wife. Your body is meant for the Lord. And so is mine, and the Lord for the body, with resurrection being the, the destiny of all of that. To put it simply, God has stamped our bodies for resurrection glory in the age to come. And that's what he says in verse 14. Now, God has not only raised the Lord, but will also raise us up through his power. See, when Christ gave his life as an atonement for sin at the cross, his body went into the grave, but it didn't stay there. It rose. That's a key aspect of our faith. We believe in the bodily resurrection of Jesus Christ on the third day, according to the scriptures. And he rose from the grave, and it underscores the dignity of our whole person, both soul and body. And that's what he means by this term body. It, it, is, it incorporates both the immaterial you and the material you. And so the powerful, glorious resurrection of Jesus Christ guarantees that our bodies also will be raised by God's effectual power. And if our bodies are to be raised like Christ's, guess what? You can't do whatever you want with your body. Your body isn't something you can put in the category of things that is gonna, are going to be destroyed and just do whatever you want with them. As followers of Christ, we have got to hold this biblical line. We have to. And we can do that 
both by our confession and we need to do that by our conduct in the church. And I believe we can do that with uncompromising courage. And at the same time, I believe the scriptures, and this text too, uh, reminds us that we need to show compassion to those who are enslaved to this kind of lusts, those who are caught in the idolatry of immorality. I always go back to Titus 3, because Titus 3 gives us the reason that we can be, we can be uh, compassionate toward those who are trapped in sin's grip. Paul says, or, yeah, Paul says to Titus, For we also once were foolish ourselves, disobedient, deceived, enslaved to various lusts and pleasures, spending our life in malice and envy and hateful, hating one another. Right? And, and that, is, that is the reason he gives from what he says in verse 2, how we can be peaceable, gentle, and show consideration for all men. So the foundation of compassion is a recognition in our heart of hearts that we too, except for the grace of God, would be in the same boat. And what we see here is the hope that Christ offers those who are entrapped to the idolatry of immorality. God the Father extends real hope to the sinner through the gospel. Christ offers real forgiveness, and the Holy Spirit measures out real power to fight temptation and walk in purity. And so what we see in our text this morning is Paul crafting a powerful argument argument that the triune God empowers us to put immorality to death and to pursue holiness, and he makes this, this Um, this point through a carefully honed set of propositions, which is what we're going to work through. And we said a couple of Sundays ago that a pure life cannot grow in the acidic soil of harsh treatment of the body. Uh, It doesn't germinate from a rigid adherence to certain external protocols um, alone. A pure life is not nourished or fed on the promise that a life will be more serviceable or useful, though it certainly will be. A pure life, we said, and this is what the text tells us, a pure life grows and thrives in the warmth and light of Christ's resurrection power. A pure life grows and thrives in the warmth and light of Christ's resurrection power. When you grab a hold of that and you trust in Christ's resurrection power, when you understand how every member of the Godhead, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, are working in concert with one another so that the body is for the Lord and the Lord is for the body. When you embrace all that that entails for you as a person, both body and soul, it shapes what you do and won't do. What you do with your body, we said, really matters. Just like what you think and believe and will in your heart really matters. And that's where we left off last time. And so he makes this point in verses 12 to 14, and now he is applying that by pointing us to the work of the triune God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. All have, uh, they all um, build off the resurrection power to, um, Paul uses that to make his point here, that we can walk in purity. So the first point in our outline this morning is this. Resurrection power has joined us to God the Son in holy union. 
Resurrection power, and it comes to us in verses 15 and to 18, resurrection power has joined us to God the Son in holy union. Um, Paul asks here in verse 15 another one of these rhetorical questions to drive home this nail, and he does it um, with this question. He says, do you not know that your bodies are members of Christ? Again, he, he uses this, this uh, rhetorical line of argumentation all throughout this chapter. And um, he starts to apply what he's already said in verses 13 and 14 now. And he says what he says in order to point out to them that they should know what he's about to tell them. That this is obvious. There were believers in the church who thought it was perfectly normal and acceptable for a Christian to go and to frequent a place of prostitution, no doubt justifying that immorality by their arguments that he already has torn down in verses 12, 13, and 14. And so he says, don't you know this? And of course, that implies that they should have known that. Um, He doesn't say that if he doesn't expect them to know that. They did know. They knew that when you put your faith in Christ, and, uh, and that involves putting your faith in him, and that, that involves the whole person, the material you and the immaterial you, and that's because you have been united forever to God the Son in union through his resurrection power. How did they know that? I mean, that's not really intuitive on its own. How would they have known that? Well, because likely Paul had taught them. <laughs> you remember Paul pastored this church for... Uh, 18 months, Acts, I think Acts 18 tells us, he was there for 18 months. And even after he left, he sent men like Apollos and Timothy and um, Peter to minister among them. So there was no shortage of good teachers to teach them um, all that they needed to know about Christ and the Holy Spirit and God the Father. There was simply no excuse for them to not know that you and I as believers are united to Christ in the closest possible way. We are in Christ, which is a, a, a phrase, a prepositional phrase that's used all throughout the New Testament and especially in Paul's writings to speak of our union with Christ. It, and, we, and we have taught through this in the past, but our union with Christ unlocks all the spiritual blessings that belong to us in the heavenly places. I mean, without that, we have nothing, literally nothing. And the first thing we need to understand about our union with Christ is that Scripture testifies that it is a life-giving union. To be united to Christ gives life. It's a union that involves a totally new quality of life. Um, And since Jesus is the source of eternal life, those who are are united to him by faith, share in that blessed life. That's the point. We just read it in our scripture reading this morning in John 14, verse 19. Jesus says, because I live, you will live also. Or as as John the Apostle writes in 1 John 5, verse 11, God has given us eternal life, and this life is in his Son. He who has the Son has life, and he who does not have the Son of God does not have life. See, the old man, the old woman, has been put to death, and Christ's glorious life has been imparted to us 
by faith. Because we are members of Christ, the scripture says, God thinks of us as having been crucified and having died with Christ. Because we're members of Christ, God thinks of us as having been buried with Christ. Because we are members of Christ, the scripture tells us God thinks of us as having been made alive together with Christ. Because we are members of Christ, God thinks of us as having been raised with him and seated in the heavenly places with him. Galatians 2 verse 20 says, I have been crucified with Christ, and it is no longer I who live, but Christ lives in me, and the life which I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God, who loved me and gave himself up for me. See, union with Christ involves a decisive, at the moment of our conversion, putting off of the old self, it is no longer I who live, and a putting on of the new self, Christ lives in me. And if you're in Christ this morning, you and I need to understand that you possess God's very life within you, and you have entered into that dynamic even now, this side of eternity. So our, our union with Christ is a life-giving union. Second, you need to understand that our union with Christ is a comprehensive union. It's a union that touches our whole being, body and soul. If you're united to Christ, everything you do in life is done in Christ. Everything. Paul says, for me to live is Christ. That means everything we do, we do with a recognition that we are united to him by faith. Third, your union with Christ is a permanent union. We possess, by, God's, uh, by Christ's resurrection power, an irrevocable, permanent bond with Christ who lives and reigns above. Paul highlights this in Colossians 3. He says, for you have died and your life is hidden with Christ in God. So when Christ, who is our life, is revealed, then you also will be revealed with him in glory. Do you hear that connection there? Because our life is hidden with Christ. That's union with Christ. Because our life is hidden with Christ, our lives are indissolubly bound up in his life. I love eggs. I love eggs. And one interesting thing about eggs is that once you scramble them, that's it. There's no going back. Once you scramble them and cook them, you denature all the proteins in the eggs, and now they're fundamentally altered. They're never going back to their original shape. And the same is true for us. We are united to Christ. It's like scrambling an egg. Our lives are bound up in his in such a way that our lives are fundamentally altered, never to return to their original state. We could sooner unscramble an egg then we could dissolve our union with Christ. Our union with Christ is a life-giving, comprehensive, permanent union. So from eternity past, really, but most definitely from the moment of our confession of Christ, into eternity future, we are members of Christ for the believer. So it's not a surprise that Paul goes on to swing his rhetorical hammer here for a second and a third time in verses uh, 16 and 17. He says this, Shall I then take away the members of Christ 
and make them members of a prostitute? May it never be. Or do you not know that the one who joins himself to a prostitute is one body with her? For he says, the two shall become one flesh. But the one who joins himself to the Lord is one spirit with him. Now, the nail that these rhetorical blows are meant to drive home here in this text is that you and I, believer, are united to Christ in the closest possible way. You have been joined to God the Son in a holy union. You and I are members of Christ's body. And so the argument goes, how could we possibly take Christ, whose life is inextricably bound up with our lives, and then bring him into our immorality? It's such a repulsive and vile thought for Paul. He immediately recoils at the end of verse 15 and says, May it never be, which is the most, um, the most forceful way to communicate that in the original language. May it never be. Perish the thought, is what he's saying. Paul's point is that the physical union of a believer with a prostitute or any other, and don't get fixated on prostitution, any kind of immorality is so out of bounds because our bodies belong to the Lord. They're not ours. Through Christ's resurrection and our being united to him on the basis of faith, all of us, both body and soul, have become members of Christ. And the implication then is given in verse 18. Flee immorality. That's the, that's the what you do with this information. Flee immorality. And it's a habitual action. There's a force of repetitive nature to this command. Keep making it your habit to flee immorality. Why? Well, he gives us another reason. Paul loves to give us reasons for his things. He doesn't just expect us to do things. He wants us to understand why. He says, flee immorality. Why? Every other sin that a man commits is outside of the body, but the immoral man sins against his own body. What does he mean by that? Well, first, he doesn't mean that immorality is the most serious of all sins. That's not what he's saying. It is a serious sin, but it is not the most serious sin. He's saying the way immorality impacts our whole person is unique. It impacts our whole person in a way that any, no other sin does. Other sins absolutely have an impact on our lives temporally, and they certainly condemn us to hell eternally. But sexual sin and sexual sin alone takes your body, your body that's now a member of Christ, and it puts it in a situation that he says is uniquely destructive and uniquely desecrating. Your body is for the Lord, and the Lord is for the body. And Christ's resurrection underscores then that the body has permanent value. So we see the Son's work in verses 15 to 18. In verse 19, we see resurrection power, secondly, has made God the Spirit. Excuse me, resurrection power has made God the Spirit our holy dwell, we have become his holy dwelling place. Resurrection power has made us God, the Holy Spirit's holy dwelling place. See, the Spirit has a work 
involved here as well. Christ's resurrection power has made us the Spirit's abode. Verse 19, or do you not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit who is in you? Again, do you not know? They should have known. They should have known. Paul says your body here in verse 19 it is um, the emphasis is on each individual believer. He says each individual believer is a temple in which God dwells. There were two um, Greek words that referred to the temple. The first word um, refers to the entire temple complex. It's kind of more general sense. But the second word Uh, refers to the sanctuary space itself, the place where a deity would have dwelt, or at least uh, presented himself to dwell. The word that's used here in verse 19, where he says your body is the temple of the Holy Spirit, is that second word. It refers to the sanctuary itself. It is Our body is God, the Holy Spirit's unique dwelling place. And so in the same way, that the temple in Jerusalem housed the very special presence of God, so the Spirit of God is housed in the believer's body. This is a special, uh, this gives, I should say, a special dignity to our lives. Every person, everything we do is connected to God. Beloved, wherever you go, you are the temple of the Holy Spirit, which God is pleased to use to dwell in you. In the Old Testament, God had a temple for his people. In the New Testament, God has a people for his temple. This then rules out all conduct that would be inappropriate for God's temple. And the application to immorality is obvious. I mean... It just jumps out of the text. But the principle reaches further than that. It goes even further than the whole issue of going to a prostitute. Anything that would desecrate and defile God's temple through impurity, which which we might engage in, should have no part in the believer's life. None of it. And that obviously includes the gross immorality of the world, the obvious stuff, fornication, adultery, homosexuality, and the like. But it includes even the more subtle ways that we might desecrate and defile God's temple by what we look at with our eyes and what we dwell on in our hearts. Remember, Jesus said what we lust after is as if we have committed adultery. So it's not just... It's not just the obvious behavior, it's the heart that matters as well. So we've seen the Son's work, we've seen the Spirit's work, and now we see Paul point out that the resurrection power uh, has placed us into God the Father's holy household. We see that in verses 19 and 20. See, Paul, he moves very seamlessly in verse 19 into verse 20 from the fact that the believer is the Spirit's dwelling place to make that final point that we are now part of the Father's holy household. He says, 
Do you not know your body is the temple of the Holy Spirit who is in you, whom you have from God, meaning God the Father, and that you are not your own? For you have been bought with a price. He says, don't you know that the presence of God's Spirit in you means that you're not your own? They should have known that. Your body, my body, doesn't belong to you or to me. It just isn't ours to do whatever we want with it. And verses 19 and 20 are the, are the exclamation point on the principle of what he says in verse 13 and 14, that the body is for the Lord. But he shifts metaphors here, and Paul does this all the time, where he'll, he'll use one word picture and then immediately, sometimes without any warning, will shift to another word picture. And that's kind of what's happening here. He shifts metaphors from talking about uh, the temple and the body and the Holy Spirit to, to the metaphor of and the image of a slave market. He says, imagine, imagine the slave market, and you are chained in that slave market to sin and to your sin. You are destined for death. And when suddenly, by an act of total and undeserved favor, a benevolent figure emerges and it pays the price for your redemption, a price that only he can afford to pay. And now you have been brought into his household. You are now treated like a son or a daughter. You have all the privileges, all the blessings, all the future inheritance of that, uh, of a son or a daughter. That's yours now by adoption through this redemption. But while we share in all the rights and privileges and blessings of a son or a daughter, we also have certain expectations and responsibilities. We have a responsibility to love and serve the master of the house with faithfulness. And that's the picture here. See, elsewhere in the New Testament, redemption, uh, redemption's accent mark rests on our freedom. We've been freed from our sin. Galatians 3 and 4 talk about this. Revelation 5, Revelation 14. We've been purchased for God. But Paul here places redemption's accent, and that's fine for him to do, on our servitude. You and I, if we've put our faith in Christ, have been bought with a price to do his will, to live for him, which is not duty. It's delight. It's not a, it's not a have to. It's a get to. It is a blessing. 1 Peter 1 reminds us of the cost with which we are bought. He says, no, you are not redeemed with perishable things like silver or gold, from your futile way of life inherited from your forefathers, but with the precious blood as of a lamb, unblemished and spotless, the blood of Christ. That goes back to what we said in chapter 5, verse 7. Christ, our Passover lamb, has been sacrificed. Therefore, clean out the old leaven. We have been purchased with Christ's blood we have been indwelt by the Holy Spirit and we have been brought into the Father's holy household. And so Christ's blood was the price that was paid to purchase us from the slave market of our sin. The price has been applied to our accounts on the basis of faith through the Holy Spirit and in all fulfillment, that in all fulfillment of God the Father's gracious choice from eternity past. 
saying he didn't just purchase your soul, the immaterial you. He purchased all of you, body and soul. The, the final application here that ties all of this together in a tight, pretty little bow flows seamlessly out of the Son, the Spirit, and the Father's work. You are one with the Son. Your body is the temple of the Holy Spirit. You've been bought out of the slave market of sin and brought into the Father's holy household, no longer your own. Verse 20, therefore, glorify God in your body. Glorify God in your body, meaning your whole person. This is the flip side, the positive command that mirrors the negative flee immorality of verse 18. That's the put off, flee immorality. What do we put on in its place? Glorify God in your body. See, it's not enough just to wall yourself off from a certain measure of immorality. That's not enough. You need to use your body, not just your physical body, but your body and soul, your whole person, to magnify, honor, and make much of the triune God. The world... The world would have those enslaved to various lusts believe that's just who you are. It's who you are. But it's a lie. It is a lie from the pit of hell. God did not create you for immorality. He created us to glorify him. He graciously extends an invitation to all who will call upon him to share in his resurrection life. If you will only humble yourself, if you will cease living life on your terms and trust in Christ who died for your sin and rose from the grave in resurrection power, you can be forgiven. And Paul, what Paul says in verse 11 can be true of you. Such were some of you, but you were washed you were sanctified, and you were justified, declared not guilty in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ and the Spirit of our God. Trust in him when he says, you're a hopeless sinner, because the scripture makes that clear. We all have sinned and fallen short of God's glory. Trust in him when his word teaches that even our best efforts are not enough. All our righteous deeds, the scripture says in Isaiah 64, are as filthy rags in his holy presence. Trust in him when you hear Jesus cry out from the cross, it is finished. Having purchased for God with his blood people from every tribe and tongue and people and nation. Trust in him who has gone before us to prepare a place for you, believing that he will come again and receive you to himself, that where he is, there you and I may be also. Trust in him. And when you've done all of that, trust in him when he says, the body is for the Lord, and the Lord is for the body. Let's pray. Father, we thank you that you have not left us to ourselves. You've drawn our lives You've grabbed us by the nape of our necks and dragged us out of our foolishness and immorality and wickedness and pride.
pride and arrogance and selfishness and idolatry and every other kind of wicked thing. We too, as the scripture says, were once disobedient, distrustful, hating one another, malicious in every way. Lord, we, we don't deserve anything but judgment. We don't deserve anything but hell. But you and your love and your mercy reached down and you purchased us out of that slave market of our sin and you brought us with a price and you made us your own. Lord, help us to live for you and to walk in purity. And Lord, we struggle with that. Lord, some of us struggle in very profound ways, and, and sometimes it feels as if there's no victory, there's no possibility that we can rise above it. But that is not true, Lord, because in your word there is resurrection power. Lord, help our hearts to grab a hold of these truths and to cling to them and to recognize who we are. And Lord, may we hold forth that hope to those who don't know you and who are enslaved to their lusts and don't have any other way to see past it. Lord, help them to see those things which you have revealed in your word. We ask you to do this for your name's sake. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. That concludes this recording. We hope you have been encouraged by the message you have heard. For more information about the gospel of Jesus Christ, additional sermon audio, or information about Cascades Bible Church, visit us online at cascadesbiblechurch.com.